When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Hitchcock is now available on demand, starring Anthony Hopkins, Helen Mirren, and Scarlett Johansson. Also available is Smashed, starring Film Independent Spirit Award nominee Mary Elizabeth Winstead. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The art house is now in your house. This podcast is also brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash SVU. From New York City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video unit. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Coming up on this week's show, Allison and I each make a mixtape to articulate our feelings about this week's Listener's Choice review, The Perks of Being a Wallflower. Later, we'll bring you Q Shots, our look at some of the current offerings and various streaming and VOD sites, all centered around a common theme. Inspired by The Perks of Being a Wallflower, we wanted to do a podcast on teen movies. But we already did a podcast on teen movies. That was SVU number 14. So instead, we're going to use Perks' setting in Pittsburgh as the keystone of a discussion about movies that take place in Pennsylvania. (laughs) (laughs) But first up is Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight one title that's new on VOD and give you a rundown of some other notable films New On Demand on Cable. Allison, what's our first pick this week? Our first pick is Wuthering Heights, which is available on demand on March 12th. You know, there have been more than a dozen adaptation of Emily Bronte's 1847 gothic novel, Wuthering Heights. It's been around long enough. In public domain, it's probably very helpful. <laughs> um, this particular version was adapted by Andrea Arnold, who also directed Fish Tank and Red Road. It stars Kaya Scodelario, who uh, acted in the UK version of Skins as Catherine, and James Howson, a first-time actor, as Heathcliff. And interestingly enough, he is also black, which he's the first black actor to play the character. And the the director based this on the description of Heathcliff as a dark-skinned gypsy in aspect, quote-unquote, from the novel. But I think it also provides an interesting angle to a character who, you know, is is adopted into this family but is never accepted, that he's kind of uh, an outsider in this family. You broke my heart. You killed me. 
You know, this project was originally slated to be directed by Peter Weber, who uh, directed Girl with a Pearl Earring. Uh, and then it had Ed Westwick and uh, Gemma Arterton as the two leads, which you'd imagine would be a much more very traditional different take. film. Yeah. Yes. And this is a very minimalist dialogue, very, say, kind of gritty almost. It's very focused on the more and nature and just this kind of savagery and beauty of the landscape. And it it's a really interesting, I don't think it's a, a, a perfect attempt, but it's a really interesting attempt to maybe get beneath the perceptions of this story, which is so familiar now as this kind of flowery, you know, romance, and instead to kind of get at these two characters as people. So uh, that's Wuthering Heights. It's available on demand on March 12th. Also on demand on March 12th is This Must Be the Place. That's Paolo Sorrentino's film starring Sean Penn as a middle-aged and vaguely Robert Smith in the Cure style rock star who becomes, uh, he's retired, he's sick of that. He goes on a quest to find his father's tormentor, a Nazi war criminal. Now, this is a film that I think was very divisive. Boy, when, are, when, are, when are they going to get away from these cliched plots? <laughs> right. uh, I, I would say that that one's worth a look just for Sean Penn, it, like the way he looks as this character alone. Also available on demand on the same date is Somebody Up There Likes Me. It's written and directed by Bob Byington, who uh, also did Harmony and Me. And it's coming out on the same day that it's getting its theatrical release. So this is a, it's kind of a quirky indie comedy. It might be most notable for the fact that it features both Nick Offerman, who you may know most recently from Parks and Recreation, and his real life wife, Megan Mullally. And they're always very charming together. So uh, if you're a fan of either of them, that's worth a look as well. All three of those films are available on demand on March 12th. Allison, we're pleased to have Audible back as a sponsor this week. Audible is the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature and featuring audio versions of many New York Times bestsellers. And for our listeners, Audible is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service. I think, Allison, you've got our recommended title this week, do you not? I do. What is it? All right. I actually just downloaded this myself. It is called Then They Came For Me, A Family's Story of Love, Captivity, and Survival. It's written by Mazier Bahari. Um, he's an Iranian journalist who was living in London with his fiance, who is pregnant, and then went back to Iran to cover the June 2009 presidential elections. He ended up uh, getting imprisoned and was kept for 118 days in the country's most notorious prison. He was beaten and interrogated by a man that he, he nicknamed Rosewater for the fragrance that he wore. And they kind of tie in, the, this is a memoir, it ties in a bit about his family's history in the country and then just about what happened in the last few decades in the country to get it to this point. Mm-hmm. Now, Matt, I did not just randomly decide that, in, you know, this week, instead no, of I, the I usual where you're going film-related this. book, I was going to do uh, yeah. some serious, serious memoir about, you know, Iran's political situation. But, in fact, the reason that I know about this, because my, my you know, interests are incredibly narrow, apparently, uh. <laughs> um, is that Jon Stewart, or, you know, recently announced that he'd be taking the summer off from The Daily Show in order to make his directorial debut. And this is the book that he is adapting. It's going to be called Rosewater, the film, after the nickname of the interrogator. Right. Uh, and, you know, John Stewart has actually interviewed Bahari on his show. So I thought it sounds like a really interesting, uh, both an interesting story, and I'm very curious to see what he saw in it that he thought would make a good first film. 
So that is Then They Came For Me, A Family Story of Love, Captivity, and Survival. All right. So for Then They Came For Me or another free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash SVU. That's audiblepodcast.com slash SVU. I was bruised and battered. I couldn't tell what I felt. I was unrecognizable to myself. Saw my reflection in the window. Didn't know my own face. Oh, brother, you gonna leave me wasting away on the streets of Philadelphia. Pennsylvania might not be a state that you would think of naturally as like one to do, a, you know, a large scale survey of movies. From. Speak for yourself. First one I thought of. Yeah, it was. We we ran through a few different themes. Not that there's anything wrong with the state of Pennsylvania, but no. its movies are you know kind of divided all over the place. You have like some very iconic Philadelphia films, and then you have some films that are set in rural Pennsylvania that are very different. So, I mean, it's brought some interesting variety to, I think, the films that we picked out. But we did end up leaving out some major films. So I wanted to give them a shout out quickly. Particularly, I'm, I'm most sad about having, like, leaving out Witness just because it's Witness. It, it's Witness. And it also represents a particular, you know, distinct culture that I think we, we didn't really get out here. And, and to, uh, to further that, we also had to leave off Kingpin, a personal favorite of oh, mine, yeah. and another deeply sensitive take on Amish culture. That's right. And we heard a little bit of music from Philadelphia, Bruce Springsteen singing Streets of Philadelphia. We're not going to sing it, but you heard Bruce Springsteen singing it. We, we didn't find room for that movie. We or, also Or Philadelphia Story. Or Philadelphia Story. Or, for that matter, probably my favorite movie of all the ones we've mentioned so far, because it's not available on streaming anywhere, Brian De Palma's Blowout, which is a fantastic Philadelphia movie and makes excellent use of the city. And that movie's not available anywhere, so we couldn't include it. Yeah, Deer Hunter also. Deer Hunter. There's a l- actually a lot. It's funny because, you know, like you said, we were kind of searching for a topic that would be different. And, and I said, well, where is this movie set? Okay, it's set in Pittsburgh. This movie meaning Perks of Being of a Wallflower. And then we were thinking about it and going, actually, there are some pretty iconic movies that are set in in Pennsylvania, but it's, you don't, you know, like we've already done a podcast on movies set in Texas. And I feel like that is a state that gets a lot more attention in terms of, you know, an iconic American state and it's used to represent things. You know, when you set a movie in Texas, it means something. And that's not to say when you set a movie in, in Pennsylvania, it doesn't mean something, but I don't think it carries the same sort of weight just by itself. And I think what was interesting was to look at some of the movies that came out of that state and to then kind of retroactively go back and look and say, okay, well, what do these locations mean and what does Pennsylvania represent on screen? And I think we found some kind of interesting things, actually. I agree. Do you want to start us off? Absolutely. I'm going to start with perhaps even if some of those movies we've mentioned are maybe more iconic, I doubt that there's a more iconic hero of at least of Philadelphia, than this man, and that's Rocky Balboa. And so then the question becomes, well, which Rocky movie do you pick here? And just for the purposes, I think, of this topic and also of trying to recommend something that people haven't seen a gabillion times, I decided to recommend the most recent Rocky, which is Rocky Balboa. choice. From 2006, directed by Sylvester Stallone, and it's available for rent or for purchase on Amazon and iTunes. And I think what makes... 
this Rocky good, and what makes it an interesting Pennsylvania movie, is the fact that this movie returns the character to his roots in a way that the series already had attempted to do, much less successfully, in Rocky V, or Rocky V, as I call it. And this movie picks up about 15 years or so after the last movie, and it has this sort of very circular quality to it. You know, Rocky has kind of, like, receded back almost to the exact state that we found him. You know, he's a little more successful now. Maybe he's a little more articulate. But he's still kind of a sad loner. I mean, not to spoil anything, but the the movie begins. Adrian has passed away. She's died of uh, cancer, I believe. And so now he lives this life as this restaurant tour and local celebrity. And then, of course, he gets drawn back into the fight game for one more match. But uh, that's really, to me, it's kind of more of a, an excuse in this case for what ends up being a, kind of a moving meditation on mortality and aging and Philadelphia is a nice place to examine that because we get to see what's become of the city since the first Rocky, which was – when this movie was made, it was about 30 years since the original. And in some ways, it, the city has changed, and in some ways, it hasn't, and that's kind of interesting in and of itself. Let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are. It will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, me, or nobody is going to hit as hard as life. But it ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. So if you never saw Rocky Balboa, the most recent Rocky, because it sounded like a bad idea, I can certainly relate to that because it did sound like a very bad idea. But I think the execution really justified this movie, which isn't brilliant. It's not Rocky. It's not Rocky Three, But it's, it's a worthy film in the franchise. Absolutely. It's not an embarrassment. It's worth seeing. So that's Rocky Balboa. It's available for rent or purchase on Amazon and iTunes. And very quickly, Allison, pop quiz, what's the best Rocky movie? Four. Wow. Right off. The, didn't even think. <laughs> Better than three? I like four best. Why? Yeah. Because of the, like, Siberian training session. Yeah, but, I mean, isn't that almost just like a, a, a rip-off of the training session in number three? Yeah, but it's, you know, it's difference... got the whole Cold War thing going on. Mm. I like that it takes this small, scrappy underdog story, and you're like, now, at this point, he's fighting for America. Yes, he's winning the Cold War <laughs> It's like, it's so, you know, shark jumping. I really appreciate that. All right, fair enough, fair enough. That's a, you, you've defended your pick with honor, if not uh, accuracy. What's your first pick? All right, my first pick is At Close Range. It's a 1986 film. It's available for rent on Vudu, directed by James Foley, who also directed Glengarry Glenn Ross, and a few episodes of House of Cards, you know, hearkening back to our last episode. And uh, this movie stars Sean Penn and Chris Penn as brothers, and then Christopher Walken as their father or one of their fathers, uh, kind of their estranged father. Uh, and it's set in a small Pennsylvania town that's kind of surrounded by farms. It's like uh, rural. And it's really interesting in its sense of place because this is basically, it's based on a true story and it's a, it's a crime story, but it's also just a story of a boy who latches on. He's like so kind of hungry for a father figure that he latches on to his actual father, who is a really terrible person to emulate. Brad, little Brad, Brad Jr. And is there a big Brad? Who is he? (laughs) 
like my father. A man too dangerous to get close to. A boy too dazzled to break away. Sean Penn is Brad Whitewood Jr. A live wire kid in a dead-end town, yearning for a family he's never known. It's got, you know, uh, Sean Penn, who at this point, he's a... in his real life, he's married to Madonna. She actually contributed the, the song Live to Tell, which was a big hit and kind of definitive in the movie. He's, at like, I think, like a really kind of great moment in his career and that he's like kind of he's young, but he's so charismatic. He can kind of stand up to Christopher Walken who is being very Christopher Walken-esque in this role. I think they're really great together. Uh, and, you know, Christopher Walken plays this kind of small-town thief who who has um, his brother is in a gang, and he takes Sean Penn's character under his wing for a bit and kind of teaches him how to, you know, basically teaches him crime, and then starts to think that uh, maybe that wasn't a good idea. And, you know, I think that the film shows the reasons that Christopher Walken's character is so appealing because like the town offers so few opportunities uh, and this kind of dead end life, you know, um, the mom in this is always like sitting on the couch watching TV. I think like uh, uh, Mary Stuart Masterson plays the love interest and she comes over for a date and they're all sitting on the couch, like watching TV. She looks so grim. (laughs) So like the promise of money and of excitement and of escape, even in this kind of petty way is very alluring. So it's a, it's a, the film is a tragedy, uh, but it's, it's a kind of, it's it's that tragedy as it builds is woven with just great scenes of them being kind of kids in this area and going swimming and just hanging out. And the the courtship between Sean Penn and Mary Stuart Masterson is really kind of nicely handled and sweet. And the film also features Crispin Glover in a refreshingly not that weird role. It was 1986. I guess he hadn't yet grown into the persona. But, uh, you know, this is a film that I'd I'd heard a lot about, but never actually gotten around to seeing until this point. And uh, I, I liked it a lot. I think it does a really great job of portraying these kind of intimate kind of big moments uh, that you can feel as, as basically just a young person uh, and then setting them against this very, you know, grounded backdrop. So that is At Close Range. It is available for rent on Vudu. This is getting to be a sean penn heavy podcast i know for a podcast that isn't about sean penn movies we're getting we're getting pretty close (laughs) my next pick i think dovetails pretty nicely with that one in an unintentional way and that it's uh kind of about similar things about pennsylvania it's called adventureland from 2009 it's directed by greg matola it's available on netflix and this movie stars a pre-social network jesse eisenberg as james who's just graduated from college only to discover all of his plans for post-collegiate life, travel, grad school, have been rendered null and void by his parents' financial problems. So instead, he gets a job at Adventureland, this amusement park near his home in Pittsburgh. And there he meets a pre-Twilight Kristen Stewart, who is uh, pretty much just like the post-Twilight Kristen Stewart. Very similar performance she plays uh, one of the other parks employees and they have a sort of a flirtation or relationship actually this movie does remind me in some ways of perks of being a wallflower and i, I don't think we want to spoil our review but it has this nostalgic but kind of clear-eyed look at what it means to be around this age you're sort of adrift between childhood and adulthood and the tone is kind of similar too isn't it it's 
has this very naturalistic blend of comedy and drama. We've got some jokes, but they're not too big, not too exaggerated. And then the melodrama is sort of cut with the film's wit. It also has a great supporting cast, including Martin Starr from Freaks and Geeks. He plays another one of the <laughs> very sad co-workers of uh, the Adventureland Park. And also Ryan Reynolds, maybe the best performance he's given in a movie to date, I think. He's like the the the, the park hunk. And his, his sort of like bland hunkiness is used, I think, to a very effective way in the movie. So what excuse do you give your mother for coming down here so late? Gotta pump some midnight iron. Uh, sometimes I come here to practice. Give Ronnie a break. Are you still hot for your wife? What's the sex like? Why, why would you Why would you say that? Don't be mean. Jeez, you're sensitive. No, I'm serious. When we're together, we're good to each other. Let's not ruin it. So that's uh, Adventureland. It might actually make a really good double feature with the perks of being a wallflower, now that I think about it. It is available on Netflix. All right. My next pick is also a more recent film. It is uh, 2010's Blue Valentine, which is currently streaming on Netflix, directed by Derek Cianfrance, who uh, has a new film coming out soon, The Place Beyond the Pines, starring Ryan Gosling, who also stars in this film alongside Michelle Williams. The two of them play Dean and Cindy. They meet when he has is working for a moving company in New York, and she is living at home in Pennsylvania and caring for her grandmother. And it is the story of how they fall in and out of love. It's set in two different time periods. It's when they're young, and it's, it's the story of how they get married. And then cut in between that is a story of them living in Pennsylvania in a kind of suburb or kind of more rural area. And uh, they have a kid, and their marriage is kind of slowly just falling apart. Hello. <clears throat> I'm calling to uh, see if I can make a reservation for tonight. I have a gift certificate. What's, what's our options? They have uh, Cupid's Cove room available. I'm not going to some cheesy sex motel. I'm going to call tomorrow. What else? That's it? Oh, and there's a future room. Can you hold on one second? Hey, we make the decision. Mom call. I can't go. Hey, please yeah, listen to me for a second. Say? Can you hold on one second? Listen to me for a second. Hey, hey, would you stop cleaning for me? I'm asking you, please. Let's get out of here. We gotta get out of here. And it is both a very romantic movie and a completely depressing one because it manages to make all of the things, all of the qualities that make their courtship work and so touching kind of be the qualities that make them <laughs> break up in the end. So is depressing, tragic romance a Pennsylvania it, theme? Maybe it is. We keep hitting on that I think over and is. over again Yeah, melancholy. Already. Yeah, Pennsylvania is for melancholy. Pennsylvania as they say, is for melancholic on, lovers. On the, the license plates. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Right, I'm sorry, keep going. No, no, no. And it, yeah, I think that it, this is like a really kind of gorgeous, gorgeously shot movie. It switches in between um, film and the red. So... I think the 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 present is shot on the red because you know digital is the harsh the harsh light of digital, um, but you know it is it does use the locations uh, very profoundly in those switching back and forth. You know, Cindy is from it kind of has class asp like kind of class aspirations. She wants to be a doctor in the beginning. She uh, kind of kind of, seems to come from a background she wants to get away from. 
And the fact that they haven't gotten away from it, that they're kind of not that far from where she started uh, when like kind of in when, when the film makes its jump in time, I think feeds some of that sense of why she feels frustrated and a little trapped. This is a film with like great performances from Gosling and Williams. Uh, and if you're a fan of either of them and you haven't seen this yet, it is very worth checking out because they do really great work together. That is Blue Valentine, currently streaming on Netflix. Okay, we're going to go with uh, a little bit older and, and not quite so uh, naturalistic for my last pick. It's a horror movie. And Allison, you were really lobbying for this pick to go to Night of the Living Dead, the... George Romero zombie classic, which is also a very iconic uh, Pennsylvania movie. I mean, and, and he's fond of Pennsylvania. He is very fond of Pennsylvania and Pittsburgh and grew up in that area and has set a lot of his movies in and around that area. I decided to go with a different movie just because, you know, this, it's another one where everyone has seen Night of the Living Dead, I suspect, anyway. And so uh, recommending it feels less special to me than picking something that's probably almost as famous, but I bet is a lot less widely seen. And that's why I picked from 1958, The Blob, directed by Irvin Yeworth. It's available for streaming on Amazon Prime. So if you're an Amazon Prime member, this one is free to stream. And actually, though, it, it's kind of interesting to think about both those movies together, The Blob and Night of the Living Dead, because they're kind of about the same thing in some ways. Night of the Living Dead is a zombie movie, of course, and The Blob is about um, – uh, well, what's the word I'm thinking of here, Allison? It's about B, it, B uh, or J. Maybe it begins with a J. No, a blob. Yeah, there you it's go. about a blob. That's it. So it's about this this blob that lands on Earth from outer space, and it's it slowly begins devouring everything and everyone in this small Pennsylvania town until it grows into this huge gelatinous beast that could threaten to destroy the entire world. But both films are essentially about this fear of, like, the mob, of the mass, you know, and about the last few individuals who haven't succumbed to the pressure of the mob, who are sort of holding on to their identity, of their individuality. And maybe this speaks to some of the themes that we've been talking about, even uh, in, like, Adventureland or some of these other movies, where you have this feeling of being like a, a, a... big fish in a small pond and being afraid that you're going to be trapped here forever and you're never going to get out and you're never going to do anything special and you're just going to become one of these people. And that's not to say that that's necessarily a Pennsylvania thing as much as it is like an American thing, maybe like a, a certain kind of America, a very suburban kind of America. Like I can relate. I grew up in New Jersey and I can sort of relate to that feeling and and those ideas so uh, the blob, if you've never seen the original blob, it has Steve McQueen, one of his It does, it, yes. As a very young and handsome Steve McQueen, he's sort of the he's the, one of the people who discovers the blob. It's actually a, the beginning is actually kind of like Spider-Man 3 where the meteorite crash lands next to this couple and then there's kind of attaches itself to someone and starts growing and feeding and uh, the effects of course are late 1950s they're a little dated mind you but you know there is a sort of essential creepiness to an idea like this just like night of the living dead which also you know the effects are not what they would become in later zombie movies but while the blob has been remade i think there is something kind of interesting about the original, because it comes from that time, the 50s, when these ideas about individuality and about being part of the mainstream and what those things meant to like an evolving American society were actually like pressing on the minds of the people who were making it. 
Doc Allen's been killed. Doc Allen? What happened? It's over at his place. You gotta come now. Now, wait a minute, Steve. Tell us what happened. Well, I'm trying to tell you. Now, this thing had killed the Doc. Well, what was it? Stop with it, kid. Well, it's kind of like a... It's kind of like a mass that keeps getting bigger and bigger. It... So that's the blob. It's available for streaming on Amazon Prime. All right. Well, my last pick is from another director who set most, if not quite all, of his films in the kind of Pennsylvania area, larger mm-hmm. Pennsylvania area. It is Unbreakable, the 2000 film oh, yes. from M. Night Shyamalan. I think actually all his films are set in Pennsylvania, except The Last Airbender, which is clearly set in New Jersey. It's available for uh, this Unbreakable is available for rent on Amazon, Google, iTunes, YouTube, and Vudu. Uh, was that a New Jersey insult? I'm trying to process. I just thought you weren't paying attention. No, I'm listening. All right. Well, I, I think that you know this is back when before uh, Shyamalan became kind of a ridiculous filmmaker. Uh, you know this was his follow-up to The Sixth Sense, and I think it's, like a, it's not quite as good as The Sixth Sense, but it is like it got some great, interesting stuff in it. And I think the fact that it is set in kind of Philadelphia is important because it's a deconstruction of kind of comic book ideas. Mm-hmm. So the fact that it's kind of taken away from maybe a more traditional location for heroes like New York or, you know, like a kind of imaginary city, and the fact that the main character is so normal until he's proven not i think really worked well for for how this breaks into the idea of a real life superhero yeah strips Um, away the gloss it does you know and you've got bruce willis and samuel l jackson kind of playing these two characters who one of whom like samuel l jackson's character is convinced basically that uh, bruce willis is unbreakable right he's seen die hard and he has <laughs> what's funny about this film is also you know as much it tries to engage with like comic book mythology it mm-hmm. starts off with a list of facts about how popular comic books are which maybe in 2000 was not quite ridiculous but seems really laughable at this point like anyone needs to be con- like reminded of right. how popular well, comic books are well 2000 is right at the start of the boom i think mm-hmm. the first x-men movie was the year 2000 also so that is kind of interesting how far we've come where people be like comic books huh okay right like maybe people really do take them seriously (laughs) maybe they could be the basis of a giant industry doubtful let's just create our own movie let's not adapt any specific comic books yeah and yeah i think like this is a very good role for bruce willis because he's someone who has always seemed a little vulnerable Mm -hmm. so to have him be this character who has a weakness but is otherwise like basically able to take incredible you know, punishment and damage. He survives this terrible train crash, which is like the, you know, sets off the movie. Uh, I think like he, there's something that uh, the film kind of finds that quality in him and uses it really well. Why are you looking at me like that? There are two reasons why I'm looking at you like this. One, because it seems you are the only survivor of this train wreck. And two... Don't have a scratch on you. And you know, I think that the one thing that this movie doesn't quite ha- like handle, and maybe becomes like a larger problem as it goes on, is the ending. It just doesn't really stick. The ending, and it ends with the kind of twist that Shyamalan really enjoys. An M Night Shyamalan movie that doesn't stick the ending. I know, but uh, I think in this case, because also. 
it doesn't seem like a movie that necessarily needed that kind of twist. Like, well, it, you know, isn't that true of a lot of his movies is. after? Know, but you know, I think seven. in this case, it actually in a lot of the ones as they went on, the characters didn't seem maybe fleshed out enough that it wouldn't matter. But uh, I think in this case, I actually I thought the there's characters some, there's some value to the twist ending here a little bit. I a think. little bit. I mean, because, I understood where I understood why it was right. there. I just no. and as someone who's read just a few comic books over his uh, yeah, lifespan, you know, right? twi- yeah, just a few. The, t- the twist ending is sort of or you know the surprise reveal of a, like a secret villain is a very hallowed tradition in comic books where, you know, the bad guy is sort of cloaked in shadow for 21 pages and then on the 22nd page he steps out from <laughs> the, the shadow light. and says, yes. it is I, Dr. Destructor! And, yeah. and then you go, oh my god, I gotta buy the next issue. So, uh, you know, there is a, there's a precedent there. Yeah. yeah. But I, I mean, I agree with you to some extent, but I can also, I think this one is less egregious than some that would follow, I would say. Uh, yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, but yeah, I mean, maybe the bigger problem isn't the fact that it is a twist ending, but as we're suggesting in comic books, there's always a next issue. Mm. Whereas, uh, you know, this could be one of those movies where it might have actually been interesting. Like it almost demands a sequel. Yeah. Which it, it didn't get, at least to date. And I think at this point, it's probably safe to say it won't. <laughs> anyway, I'm Sorry, I'm interrupting you. No, it's okay. I'm about done. I just think that it is actually an interesting movie to take another look at, particularly since, you know, as we mentioned, the we've the comic book movie is like now a dominant yeah. blockbuster form. I haven't seen it since I mean, I saw it a couple of times. I have it on DVD somewhere, but I haven't watched it since maybe 2003 or something. So, yeah, I all what you're saying is making me very curious to revisit it. Yeah, I wonder well, how it holds up. Yeah, so that is Unbreakable. You can rent it on Amazon, Google, iTunes, YouTube, or Voodoo. This episode of Film Spotting SVU is also sponsored by MoviePass. Watch unlimited movies in theaters around the country for a flat monthly rate. You check in using an app on your smartphone and buy your ticket with a membership card, and it works for any new release, though it doesn't cover 3D or IMAX yet. Allison and I both have our movie passes. I've been using mine pretty regularly. I just used mine last week. It's a great service. It is a great service. And, you know, if you go to the movies a few times a month, it's something that you probably do want to check out. Uh, instead of paying per ticket, you just pay a flat fee for the month, uh, and that gets you entry to one film per day. So check out moviepass.com slash filmspotting for more info, and use the offer code filmspotting to get $10 off the first month of your subscription. I had lunch with Craig today. Yeah? He said he was sorry and that I was right to break up with him. I'm driving away and just feeling so small, just asking myself, why do I and everyone I love pick people who treat us like we're nothing? We accept the love we think we deserve. Our listener's choice review this week is The Perks of Being a Wallflower. It's currently available on VOD as well as for rent on iTunes and other sites. It's written and directed by Stephen Chbosky, who also wrote the 1999 novel on which the film is based. Um, as we mentioned on the last podcast, despite winning Best First Feature at the Spirit Awards, Chbosky actually did write and direct a 1995 film called The Four Corners of Nowhere, which got into Sundance. Um, he's also the co-creator and executive producer and writer of Jericho, the TV series. Um, the film stars Logan Lerman as Charlie, who is the wallflower of the title. He's a very shy high school freshman who uh, ends up being taken under the wing of two seniors he meets, Sam, played by Emma Watson, and her stepbrother, 
Patrick, played by Ezra Miller. And the film is basically about the year that they spend together and the kind of the safe space that Sam and Patrick have managed to create for this group of outsiders of the high school scene. Um, these kids who obsess over the Smiths and participate in midnight screenings of the Rocky Horror Picture Show and who dance like goofballs at the prom and arrange secret Santas, highly personal presents. Charlie falls in love with Sam and uh, kind of falls in love with, in a platonic way, Patrick as well. The two really save him from some serious personal problems uh, in his past that slowly emerge. The film also stars Mae Whitman and Aaron Willemy as two of the other friends in the group. Nina Dobrev as Charlie's sister Candace, Kate Walsh and Dylan McDermott as his parents, and Paul Rudd as Mr. Anderson, the English teacher who gives him reading material. The film was set in and shot in the Pittsburgh area. Now, Matt, there have been a few uh, kind of coming-of-age films lately. Seemed, they're kind of about sad teenage boys who don't seem to have any major problems to be that sad about. Um, some of these films have been okay, like Anna Bowden and Ryan Flex. It's kind of a funny story. Um, other ones I've really, really disliked, like this film called Someday This Pain Will Be Useful to You that came out last, last I don't year. I know that one. All these films seem to have fairly long titles, including The Perks of Being a Wallflower. <laughs> um, so what I wanted to know for you is whether you felt like you would group this film into that, or if you felt like it kind of it managed to have its own thing going on well i i hadn't even heard of that last one but uh i can see the similarity that you're drawing to it's kind of a funny story i think this is a much better movie i think it stands apart at least in terms of quality although i can see the comparison you're drawing and what i liked about it in a, in a sense was the fact that it felt very different to me from a lot of other high school movies even though there are these other movies that are kind of like it, and that the subject of all high school movies are basically the same thing, which is high school and teenage life. And it was a lot of it, I think, had to do with sort of the tone. So many movies, so many high school movies, are about trying to be cool, wanting desperately to fit in, trying to have sex, like the quest to lose your virginity, the, like the desperate rush to grow up. And this movie is, in every way, pr practically, like, the opposite of all that, you know? It kind of is really about celebrating how beautiful it is to not be a grown-up. And it's about sort of reveling in that moment before you become obsessed with being cool and, and having sex and all these sorts of things. And the way the character kind of falls in with this group, which isn't interested in being popular and sort of exists as its own functional peer group... I thought was really interesting and, and sort of beautiful the way that the movie celebrated these characters for their their uniqueness and their individuality. And I have to say, I really like this movie a lot. Yeah, I really like this movie too. And it, it was a real pleasant surprise to me. It was one that I saw in the theaters and was assigned to review. Um, mm -hmm. And I didn't expect to be so just won over. But it does, you know, have, as you like mentioned, this kind of sincerity and this real big heartedness. Like it is... It is like a deeply like um, felt like hours spent on uh, mixtape of a movie. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like it and it it does uh, really celebrate this kindness, like the kind of the importance of friendships in this in this real way of like how you know the the main character has a supportive family, but it's about how much you can need your friends, you know, especially as a teenager. And I thought that the fact that he had some genuinely painful things happen to him mm -hmm. was also 
helpful in explaining, you know, he wasn't just a guy who was shy. He was also someone who, you know, had, there was a sense of urgency to his kind of need for a community and to his need to kind of hold on to them and open up to them. Mm -hmm. And I thought that the film handled that really well and made those relationships both really sweet while underlining their importance. Yeah. I mean, again, I look at so many teen movies and I feel like there's a, there's a demand for, and maybe the demand is just amongst the people who are paying to make the movies, but this demand that everyone should be like relatable and universal. And I felt like this movie was not, it was very specific. And I actually didn't necessarily relate to a lot of the characters and I liked it more for that. I was not like the main character of this movie in high school. I was not like any of the main characters of this movie in high school, but I loved the way that the movie felt like these were real people in a very specific way and that they, they existed and it really respected them and didn't try to make them like everyone else and like someone you knew necessarily or that your experience has to be the same as theirs but it let you understand their experience and i thought that was also really really uh, admirable about the way the movie was made i mean i don't know i don't know i was asking this before we were recording whether or not this is like an autobiographical movie and i feel like if you don't know whether it is or not but you're asking that question it's probably a good sign for a movie because it suggests that there's a, a sense of authenticity to it where you feel almost feel like there's no way the guy could have invented this because it feels so truthful it must be drawn from real life and maybe part of that in this case is the characters are constantly telling logan lerman's character write about us you know you should use us as your inspiration because he's contemplating becoming a writer so in some sense there's this there's this suggestion that Logan Lerman is the author of the movie we're watching. But uh, I, I, you've told me that maybe that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, I think it's it's based on a setting that is similar to the author's childhood. But he's said that it's it's pretty different from his experiences in high school. But I do think that there is a specificity to the characters. You know, they don't fit into any of the normal kind of cookie cutter types of teen movie characters. You know, I think that Emma Watson's character when you learn about her and kind of her background and like when she talks about who her first kiss was with, you know, these are really kind of interesting wrinkles. And I think in the same way, you know, Patrick doesn't have this typical, uh, maybe like the typical gay character storyline that you might expect in, uh, in this. And it doesn't come to a neat resolution either. You know, I think that, uh, there's something about the way that a lot of these characters, including like Mae Whitman's character, who has a really kind of funny, awkward romantic relationship briefly with the protagonist, yeah. you know, none of them take a kind of like the easy expected narrative route. They mm-hmm. kind of, they, they kind of cue out their own path. And I thought that was handled really well. Something else I wanted to ask you about. This movie is set in the early nineties and there's this kind of crazy sense of how big a culture gap is going to happen in the next decade, just in terms of the media here, right? Like the mixtapes, like uh, the movie, like the, you know, uh, going to see Rocky Horror Picture Show about how kind of talismanic identifying with these pieces of pop culture are. You know, there's a song, they're driving in the tunnel, and this song comes on the radio, and it's Heroes by David Bowie. But... None of the characters know what it is. They're teenagers. They've never heard it before. And they spend a lot of time, like the movie, trying, get, to, figure try, it trying out. to figure it out. And the idea 
that that, you know, happened really not like within our lifetimes that like leap happened where you could be like, I'm going to Shazam it. Right. <laughs> you know, right. and then I'll download it and we'll have it right away. You right. know, like pop culture, like these specific things are very different, have a very different meaning at this point mm-hmm. than I think they would in a high school exp- experience a decade later, mm-hmm. you know, because finding being able to find these things was a way of self-identification. It's still, I mean, what you, the music you like, the movies you like are still a means of self-identification, but the internet has made finding them so much easier. And it's an interesting and like, I think really kind of great look at this kind of tail end of this time when you really had to seek these things out. And then you had something in common with someone if you both like the same thing. Right. Knowledge had a currency. Yeah. You know, if you could figure out what it was then then that made you special or different somehow. And that, I think, speaks to also that mixtape ethos, which was like, I found these great, weird songs that you've never heard of. Here, I want to share them with you. Whereas now, it, it seems so quaint, this idea. You know, I can only imagine what a, a, an 18-year-old in 2013 thinks when they watch this movie and go, mixtapes? <laughs> what does that mean? And yet, that was such a huge part of being that age. I will say one of the things that I didn't like as much about this movie had to do with that setting, though, in that we've talked about the specificity of the movie, and I felt like that was a little bit lacking in terms of the setting. You know, there are these 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 totems that suggest it is the early 90s, like the mixtapes, like some of their song choices, but the characters don't dress necessarily like it's the early 90s. Or the the cars are necessarily early 90s. Like, I, I felt like the movie was trying to sort of look vague in a way that made it look timeless or at least more palatable and less strange to a young teenage audience of today that wouldn't go, why are they dressed like that? Why does, you know, like everyone probably should have looked like characters, want to be characters on 90210. You know what I mean? And I, I found that to some degree to the movie's detriment because it is so specific in some ways but not quite specific enough, maybe in a visual sense. Did you feel that way? Yeah, I would agree. I, I mean, I feel like it. the movie made a very conscious decision to have all of the like called out pop culture references not be current to the time period it would take it like take place in right yeah rocky horror was 1975 they they danced to come on eileen right and that was uh like an 80s song right Right. like an early 80s song right and they're so obsessed with the smiths who are 80s as well and i think like you know not that probably teenagers today aren't completely obsessed with the smiths like a certain group as well like some things you know are universal but i do think the film you're right the film does go out of its way to kind of a sidestep like references like contemporary to the time the references right. that would be contemporary to that time maybe maybe that some of that is budget mm-hmm. and maybe some of that is to try to be timeless in the sense that uh, they don't want you to think about it too much but then again if it is painting this portrait of what it was like at this certain time maybe that portrait isn't quite complete in that in that way i don't know i mean is it early 90s i almost thought it was like very late 80s i was sometimes unsure because their music is so 80s ish yeah uh, and the mixtapes and 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 there's lines like you know things sound so much better on vinyl like uh-huh. I don't know and then it, this is sort of like between the two periods where vinyl was cool and then it became cool again wouldn't it yeah I think so yeah I don't, I don't know, know. I on agree. the other hand on the other hand there is some really wonderful storytelling there are some great characters even the supporting characters are very well drawn 
you know, there, there, there's kind of an, a nice economy to the characters where a little bit says a lot. Like, we get a sense of these characters very quickly. Like, the, uh, the, the boyfriend character who's sort of Logan Lerman's rival is kind of introduced in this one scene and very quickly establishes kind of this – he's an older guy and he's kind of supposed to be like this, like this college jerk-off, basically. And he, like, says – when somebody asks him if he writes poetry and he says – poetry writes me and i was like how in three words do you define someone as a douchebag and those three words do it maybe better than anything else could and i thought that was brilliant just the way in three words you're like okay i hate that character now you know you don't have to say anything else and i thought the way that they did that i thought was right on point and very impressive yeah and i think that there's a kind of nice messiness to some of the story like like i like that you know, when Paul Rudd's character was first introduced, I was like, oh, God, like, is he going to be the inspirational teacher? Right. And he is the inspirational teacher, but only within the context, the, the you know, extremely limited context of the school, which makes total sense because that's how, you know, even like most close teacher-student relationships are. They only see each other within this small context. Right. And he's giving him books to read. And I think that there was something kind of nice about that, how that worked out. Well, we should probably get close to wrapping this up. But, I, I, you know, I'm not a big Harry Potter guy. I've only seen a couple of the movies. Never read any of the books. So I'm not exactly – I'm not too familiar with Emma Watson as an actress. But I thought she did a fabulous job, especially with, you know, like the, if I didn't know she was British, she could have, she could have convinced me that she wasn't. I thought her accent was, was spot on. And, uh, you know, I could have seen, like, if I saw this movie when I was 16, a a deep and dangerous obsession could have been formed. (laughs) You know, I think I'm, I'm okay now, happily married man, but I could see, you know, as a 16 year old, you know, really being drawn to that character and that performance. I thought she did a, a fabulous job. I don't know. Yeah. I, Logan Lerman, I thought, did a great job, too. I will say he probably looks a little old to be, like, the freshman. A little – and his voice, you know, like – he almost seems more pubescent than I do, frankly. Like, I feel like my <laughs> voice cracks more than his does. And I'm 32. I'm twice as – you know, twice the age of the character at this point. And I, I still feel like puberty's – you know, it's, it's coming eventually. It's coming eventually, it'll but happen. It'll, it'll happen. happen. For you. I keep crossing my fingers and hoping for the best, and someday I'll grow a mustache. But I don't know. I felt like, I mean, he was a great actor for the role. I felt like they chose the best actor, not necessarily the, maybe the most perfect physically for the part. Uh, but he did a great job. And Ezra Miller also, who's a, you know, is an actor who's been great in a lot of things. I think he's a really talented young actor. This movie is worth seeing. I think we've probably made it clear. Yes, we like this movie. We recommend you check it out. It's the perks of being a wallflower. And Allison, where is it available right now? It's on VOD and on iTunes and Amazon and other uh, rentable sites. Before we wrap things up with Behind the Eight Ball this week, let's just thank everyone who came out to our live podcast. We had a great time. I, I hope everyone enjoyed listening to the live podcast. But for the people that came, we had a great time. It was a lot of fun. Hopefully we'll get to do it again. I'm not sure when the next one will be, Allison, but... We're hopeful to do another one. Yeah, I had a great time. It was really, really fun to actually meet listeners and uh, very great to actually see that people would come out to see us blather in person. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was it was really exciting that people came and we sold the place out. And afterwards, we hung around and talked with some of the listeners. It was a great time. Now, one other bit of housekeeping here. We did our ill-advised Oscar bet. And Allison, we haven't even talked about what we're going to do. Yes, it's a dilemma. This is the problem. Allison, explain what happened. We had this bet. If you listen to the podcast, you know we bet on the Oscars every year. The loser was going to have to sing a song of the other person's choice for you guys. To suffer through. To suffer through. 
And I think we were both really excited to beat the other person yes. in this in this battle. And when the results came out, Allison, what happened? We tied. We tied. We each got 18 correct answers. So yeah. now we don't know what to do because no. we feel like we set this up. We are obligated to deliver something. But we didn't. How do we decide? I don't know. Did you have a song chosen out for me? I hadn't yet. No. Yeah. Did you have one for me? I did. What was it going to be? The Humpty Dance by Digital oh Under- Underground. I was. I really thought it out too. Oh, <sighs> wow. I know. It would have been so good. Wow. Well, let's do this. I think let's table it for a moment and let's ask people. Email us svu at filmspottingsvu.com give us we really need to know what should we do in the event of a tie we should have had a plan we should have had a contingency to, no, we, didn't we didn't have a tiebreaker i know we didn't have anything like so it's too late to invent a tiebreaker now i think but what can we do to settle this should we have another bet perhaps we double or nothing i don't know <gasps> maybe people can suggest something else we could bet on we need suggestions we need you guys to help us out email us svu at filmspottingsvu.com help us out help us figure out how to solve the the great crisis of the ill-advised Oscar <laughs> wager of 2013. All right, Allison, let's move on to Behind the Eight Ball. Are you ready to count down all these movies people can find on streaming? I am. All right, let's start with three new releases. First up is Manufactured Landscapes, the 2007 documentary, which is now streaming on Hulu, directed by Jennifer Baikwal. This is a documentary about Edward Bertinsky, who is a photographer who's known for doing these large-scale photographs of industrial landscapes. And so this documentary follows him as he goes to China, and it has these just gorgeous, stunning tracking shots and just shots in general of things like the Three Gorges Dam and these factories, uh, you know, where are so many things that are, uh, that are used in the U.S. now and many other places are made, including this one factory that's like uh, employs 23,000 workers and it just kind of goes, travels through that. Like the opening shot travels through a factory and is amazing. So that's Manufactured Landscapes. It's on Hulu. Next up is Friends with Kids. It is new on Netflix. It's directed by Jennifer Westfeldt, uh, who I think I mentioned before, her first feature was Kissing Jessica Stein. Uh, she wrote and directed and stars in this one as well, alongside, uh, alongside Adam Scott. The two play a pair of friends who decide to have a kid together while not being together romantically. Uh, and they're, you know, the, the cast is extremely charming. And I'd say for that alone, it's worth taking a look. And finally, No Such Thing is also new to Netflix. This is a 2001 film directed by Hal Hartley and tells the story of a journalist played by Sarah Polly who travels to Iceland to find the monster who killed her fiancé. But because this is directed by Hal Hartley, it's, a, it's kind of like an oddball movie. So that is No Such Thing. It is new to Netflix. All right. And two expiring titles. Uh, the first film is expiring March 15th from Netflix. It is that VHS classic. UHF, 1989 film directed by Jay Levy and a vehicle for legendary thespian Weird Al Yankovic, who plays a guy who takes over a local TV station uh, and then the janitor who's accidentally left in charge of uh, the kids show turns out to be amazing at it and he's played by... Michael Richards. Uh, it's become kind of a cult favorite over the time, though I think like when it came out in theaters, it was a giant flop. But so I saw it in theaters. <laughs> I'm glad. My mom took me. 
<laughs> but we I, had a great time. I would, I would hope so. Yeah. That's UHF. It's expiring on March 15th. Expiring on March 16th from Netflix is Metropolitan, the 1990 uh, Whit Stillman film, his first and probably his best, though I still have a soft spot for Last Days of Disco. It's about a group of upper class, over-articulate, and painfully self-aware young people during their debutante season. And it is a terrific film if you have not seen it yet. That's expiring on March 16th. All right. One random film from your queue. You gave me number 19, and I think this is a film that you will be happy about. It is... Killer Elites, the mm. 2011 film directed by Gary McKendry, mm. um, starring Jason Statham, mm. Robert De Niro, Ooh. and Clive Owen. Mm. First two play assassins. The last one plays member of like a secret society called the Feathermen. The Feathermen. You know, when you saw this in the theaters, I remember you explained the plot to me, and I did not believe really follow it. There's like, why is this so complicated? It should just be Clive Owen and Jason Bateman chair fighting. Jason Statham. Statham Although Clive Owen and Jason, Jason Bateman. Statham. That would be Statham pretty great chair too. Fighting. I would see, yeah. Or Jason Statham and Jason Bateman chair fighting. God, all of these movies sound awesome. How yes. do I? How do we like Kickstarter this? Can we do yeah. that? Let's. We won't even tell the people. We'll just be like, "We're, we're going to make this project." So happen. wait, does the fact that it's in your queue mean you haven't watched it yet? That is correct. What? <laughs> wait, just quickly. I know. Yeah. Why are they called the Feathermen? Because their touch, Allison, is light. And with that, let's move on to your picks. Are you ready, Matt? I'm ready. All right, three new films. Okay, this first one is one of my favorite swashbucklers from when I was the age of the uh, characters and perks of being a wallflower. It's 1998's The Mask of Zorro, directed by GoldenEye director and future Casino Royale director Martin Campbell. This version of Zorro, which is kind of a clever reboot slash sequel, co-written by the screenwriters who would go on to create the Pirates of the caribbean franchise ted elliott and terry rosso stars antonio banderas as a thief out for revenge against the men who killed his brother who is then trained to become the new zorro by the original zorro who's played by who else anthony hopkins (laughs) uh like martin campbell's bond movies uh mask of zorro has a great sense of adventure and some really wonderful stunt and action sequences it also has a bit more humor than at least his second bond effort uh the movie also has Catherine zeta jones she plays hopkins like long lost daughter and this was really the role that kind of made her a star and if you see the movie you'll understand why that's mask of zorro it's available on netflix and speaking of star-making roles, my next title, which is also available on Netflix, is uh, one that made the world uh, get to know Terrence Howard. It's called Hustle and Flow. Howard plays DJ, a Baltimore pimp who dreams of becoming a hip-hop star. In an unlikely underdog story, DJ, a few of his friends, and, and some of his loyal uh, hookers, tricks, I believe he calls them, begin to create some beautiful music. Which expresses to the world how hard it is for a pimp. The, as hard as it is to believe, it's ha- as hard out here as it is to believe. The, the song, It's Hard Out Here for a Pimp, won the Oscar for Best Original Song, proving yet again just how hip the, uh, the Academy is. <laughs> That's Hustle and Flow, available on Netflix. And uh, last but not least, okay, last but least, available on Crackle. The, one of the ultimate so bad it's good movies of recent years, or the ultimate so bizarre it's amazing, I Know Who Killed Me, starring Lindsay Lohan, just before her career fell off a cliff. Maybe during. Yeah, the, this might be the cliff. This, might, <laughs> this was the cliff. Uh, Lindsay Lohan plays Aubrey, a teenager who goes missing one night and is found a few days later, sands one of her legs and arms... 
claiming now to be Dakota, an amnesiac stripper. If it sounds ridiculous, Allison, oh, it is. And if it sounds terrible, oh, it is. But it's so terrible, it's wonderful. With this wild, over-the-top color aesthetic where everything is color-coded, like there's blue lights and blue rubber gloves and blue roses and everything is blue and then it's red oh god it's such a mesmerizing train wreck that's i know who killed me it is available on crackle you will not believe your eyes two expiring films okay expiring on netflix on march 15th it's the original hannibal lecter thriller no not silence of the lambs no not hannibal rising what are you talking about it's manhunter from the fortuitously named director michael mann the story, adapted from author Thomas Harris's first Lecter novel, Red Dragon, features Brian Cox in the role that Anthony Hopkins, he's all over the place here, Anthony Hopkins would later make one of the most iconic bad guys in movie history. Critics are very sharply divided on who was the better Lecter, which is the better Lecter movie. Allison, do you have a preference here? Silence or Manhunter? No, I'd say silence. So would I. So there you go. We settled it once and for all. But some people think Manhunter is better, and that is expiring... On Netflix on March 15th, also expiring on March 15th, and uh, kind of scary in its own right, or at least significantly gimmicky, is House on Haunted Hill from director-producer William Castle and starring Vincent Price as an eccentric millionaire who offers five people $10,000 each if they can survive (laughs) one night in a haunted house. And back in 1959, Castle released House on Haunted Hill in the senses-shattering format of Emergo. Which was a fancy-schmancy way of saying that at a key moment in the film, they just shoved a skeleton out in front of the audience and dangled (laughs) it from the rafters. Obviously, now if you watch it at home, you won't get Emergo, although you could invite someone very skinny over to, like, I don't know, swing from a rope or something. Or maybe you have a skeleton lying around and you can just arrange for this. Right, if you're, you know, you're taking an anatomy class or something, yeah, you could probably improvise. But nevertheless, even without the gimmick, it's actually, for a 1959 movie, it has some very solid scares and has a very nice, dark sense of humor. That's House on Haunted Hill. It's expiring on March 15th. And one from your queue. You gave me number two. Number two, whereas uh, similar to yours, it's called Assassination Games. Directed by Ernie Barbash and starring Jean-Claude Van Damme and Scott Adkins, who's kind of my man crush right now, Allison. I've talked to you about Scott. You, yeah. You yeah. know about my buddy Scott, right? No. No? No. Well, Scott Adkins is this uh, martial artist guy. He was in Universal Soldier Day oh, that's of Reckoning. Right. Yeah, yeah. Made, he was in Expendables 2. Right, right. Uh, he, I don't think he was in Killer Elite, but he should have been. Oh, he should have been. He could have had a chair fight he with is, Jason, Jason Bateman. <laughs> he's really quite transcendent. <laughs> I think he's, you know, he's really, really great. He's a great action, up-and-coming action actor. This was a direct-to-DVD, uh, VOD kind of job. The uh, description from Netflix is rival assassins join forces to dismantle a global drug cartel operating in league with the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency. <laughs> Blowing the lid off the DEA, Allison, the truth must be told. That sounds splendid, and I'm glad it's really the professional assassins we're looking at in- for us. Investigative journalism in the form of kicks to the face, just the way I like it. I actually did watch a little of this movie one night, and it was pretty terrible. I just haven't deleted it from my Netflix queue. Um, so I don't know. if I actually don't know if I would recommend this one. If you're interested in Scott Adkins, there are other better places to go, like Universal Soldier Day of Reckoning, like Undisputed 3, like Ninja, which they're now making a sequel to. Anyway, that's Assassination Games. It is available on Netflix. 
Now it's time to announce the listeners' choice selections for our next episode in which you vote for the film that we review. Matt, what's our first option? Our first option is the film Popeye from 1980, directed by Robert Altman. Sort of a famous or maybe notorious oddity. Now, Wikipedia page for the movie says that it earned back twice its budget and thus was not a flop, almost in a way that sounds kind of defensive, like right. it was written somebody, written by somebody who's a big fan of the movie. Or like it had previously said this was a flop and someone wrote, No, it's not. It, it was yes. a huge success. Look at the box office numbers. Um, so the film definitely does have its defenders. I remember being sort of mystified by it as a child. I certainly saw it then. I saw it, I think, again in college or maybe grad school. But again, that's now 10, 15 years ago. It's been a very long time. So it would be uh, very curious to revisit this one and, and see it with a, you know, a older man's eyes. Allison, have you seen Popeye? I have seen a bit of it also when I was young. And I yeah. remember it as almost like nightmarish. <laughs> it's very strange. It is and very even, strange. like his arms. You know, yeah. he, it's Robin I mean, like, Williams as Popeye and he has these big Popeye forearms. Right. I mean, like, you never wanted to see Popeye in, like, kind of realistic live-action form. He's a little deformed, like, a you little, know? A little, yeah. He does kind of look a little bit freakish. It's yeah. right on the line of something that's kind of disturbing. Yeah, absolutely. So that would be very interesting to revisit. That's Popeye. That's on Netflix. And that's option number one. Allison, what's option number two? Option number two, by request on Twitter, is Primer, which is streaming on Netflix. This is Shane Caruth's First film, uh, you know, he has uh, his new film, Upstream Color, which is apparently even more mystifying, coming out in theaters in April. So we thought this might be a good time to take a, a potentially another look at Primer. Uh, you know, 2004 film, uh, often considered one of the kind of most notable films to come out of Sundance in recent years. Uh, it was made for, you know, a few thousand dollars and is, a, a, you know, which is very affordable for a film about time travel, which is what it's about. Uh, it's about time travel and very, very complicated mathematical timelines or something like that. So Primer is our second choice that is streaming on Netflix. All right. I kind of suspect that's going to be the winner and I maybe don't even bother doing the third pick, but maybe I'll be wrong and maybe I'll be happy to be wrong. I don't know. But our third option is available on iTunes. It's a new film. It's called It's a Disaster, written and directed by Todd Berger and Allison. Here's the plot description. Four couples meet for Sunday brunch only to discover they are stuck in a house together as the world may be about to end. It is a disaster movie comedy. This film has played at a bunch of film festivals and gotten very good reviews. I did a little roundup of the reviews on my CriticWire blog this week and actually was kind of surprised how good the reviews were. Very, very positive. Didn't really see any negative ones at all. And uh, has a nice cast, including David Cross and several other comedians you may know. And uh, it looks really interesting. I'm sort of half interested, kind of scared to see it. I don't know why some of these topics sometimes unsettle me, but I'm I, being stuck at brunch forever—that's that's, exactly that's what I was really talking about. Being, frightening. That is very frightening to me. Uh, I've been there. It's very relatable. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, this could be a very interesting option as well. It's it's a disaster, and it is available now on iTunes and VOD. So which movie should we review on the next episode of Filmspotting Streaming Video Unit? You can send your pick to svu at filmspottingsvu.com or enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, March 18th at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, which is at FilmSpottingSVU. And you'll have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on next week's episode, which will be on Tuesday, March 26th. Film spotting. <laughs> I hope. <laughs>
and make it through. <laughs> Film Spotting SVU is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. The Film Spotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. Listen to more of Vince's work at vincevandal.com. We'll be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the review you pick. In the meantime, you can follow me and Allison on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And you can follow the show on Twitter at FilmSpottingSVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share lots more streaming suggestions from SVU listeners. For FilmSpotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.